Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Yeah, thanks for being here with us this morning and uh, just worshiping with us. And I'm just hoping that as many of you as possible can come back and join us on Christmas Eve. We have a Christmas Eve service um, that's going to be taking place this Friday, the 24th at 3.30 p.m. So I just want to encourage you to come to that, and it's going to be a really precious time that we all get to worship together the birth of the newborn king. Well, this fall, this season, we've been in a series called Choices, and we've been talking about the choices that we as people get to make on if we're going to we're going to choose to follow God or if rather we're, we're going to choose to follow our own ways. And as we've seen, there were many generations back in the book of Judges that had to wrestle with this and wrestle with this question of, am I going to serve God or am I going to choose to serve myself and live for my own ways? But when it comes to Christmas, when it comes to the season that we find ourselves in right now, this time of year, we get, a, we get a chance to think first and foremost, not so much about the choices that we get to choose to make, but about the choice that God made to send his one and only son. And let's just think about this for a few minutes this morning. Just this idea of God choosing to send his only son. And I don't know if you realize this, but God, God could have chosen to save the world in any way that he wanted to. I mean, after all, he is God. So as the Bible says, I mean, he, he's, a, he's not only the creator of heaven and earth, he's all-powerful, he's sovereign and all-knowing, he's present everywhere, and he could have saved us however he wanted to. And I want us to picture God this morning to, to the best of our ability and try to imagine ourselves up in heaven with him, hearing from him about how he would go about saving the world. But as we're trying to get ourselves there this morning, I just maybe close your eyes if you like and just try to imagine yourself up in heaven. So I give you permission this morning if you'd like to to close your eyes. But one of the things that I, you might notice, don't fall asleep. <laughs> one of the things you might notice is that as the book of Revelation describes for us, there's going to be a street of gold. And you might just notice the, the brilliance of it and that it's almost um, as clear as glass as the Bible talks about. You might be seeing that right now. And why else would there be a street made of gold that you're seeing other than gold is no longer the highest commodity or resource, but rather the lowest. And that heaven only gets better from there. Or maybe just picture maybe thousands or even millions of of fruit trees and vegetable trees and varietals all around you that you've never seen or tried before. And just picture God saying, 
if you thought your favorite fruit or vegetable was amazing, try this. And maybe just picture landscape all around you that is, that is simply just mind-boggling. And maybe if you were to picture or think about the Grand Canyon, and if you thought that was something, well, hey, why, why don't you look at this, God might say. Or try it right now and just picture in your mind as you're, as you're trying to imagine heaven. Try to picture the absence of hopelessness, the absence of anxiety, the absence of fear, the absence of stress. No more hunger, no more pain, no more longing or suffering or devastation, no more loss or sorrow or anger or evil. All of them, gone. And more than all of this, think about being in the very presence of God. Try to picture him right now as if you're in his presence of, of God Almighty, on, maybe on or near his throne. And just envision yourself actually seeing him, actually being in his presence. And he is radiating in his full glory. And there is actually warmth and heat coming from him. And as you notice his white robe, and breathe in the heavenly incense that's sweeter and more fragrant than anything that you've ever smelled in your entire life. Just take it in. Take it in. Him sitting on his throne in his full majesty. You just being in his presence. This is going to be the best part of heaven. It's going to blow everything else out of the water. And keeping your eyes closed, if you like, hopefully now you're imagining being up in heaven with God. And God, he could have gone about creating the world any way that he wanted to. I mean, he could have sent an angel, as he'd done many times in the Old Testament, telling everyone what to do in order to be saved. Or he could have left something covered underground, possibly, uh, for geologists to find on one of their digs. Or possibly some sacred writings that, that would be discovered that would just maybe describe everything about him without a shadow of a doubt to all that would not only read it but apply it. Or he could have sent the Messiah. He could have sent an earthly man that, that they were looking for, the anointed one as proclaimed, who would be bent on conquest and war, just like the Jews thought he would come, showing his power, showing that he was going to save them from their physical oppression. But imagine, imagine still in God's presence that he looks at you and with such certainty in his voice and such fatherly love in his gaze, he speaks up and says to you, this is how I'm going to save humanity. I'm going to choose to send my one and only son. And they're going to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
And he is going to live among humanity and meet their needs through supernatural means. And although he's done nothing wrong and committed no sin, he's going to give his life and sacrificially die for all of humanity's sin. And that's not it. Three days later, he's going to raise back to life miraculously. Coming back out of the grave, resembling that death has no power over him, and that anyone who believes in him, that death will have no power over them or their wrongdoing either. After they die, they're going to be in heaven with him and with me. Oh yeah, and one other thing. I will also put my Holy Spirit, my power, and my presence in all who choose to believe. And I'm going to to choose to make them the place where my presence, my majesty, my glory, and my likeness dwells for all the world to see. You can open your eyes. Now, my goal here was was really just to get us thinking about this fact that at some point, this God in heaven, who we, we can't even fully imagine, even if we tried, he had to think about and go about figuring out how he was going to save us. And I don't know about you, but he thought about a way that was so loving, so sacrificial, so relational. It was personal and close and intimate and beyond anything that we could have ever asked or imagined. God knew what was necessary for salvation, and he knew that it was bigger than just convincing people to believe in him. That was not enough to save people. That was not enough to save people, make them fit for heaven. He, he couldn't also just rescue people from their enemies. That wasn't going to save them either. He knew that since the Garden of Eden, since back in Genesis chapter 3, in the beginning of the Bible, when Adam and Eve, the first humans, back when they did the opposite of what they were supposed to do and committed evil, committed bad, wrongdoing as we know it today, that from that time forward, sin entered the world. And not only have people chosen to do more bad and more wrong and more evil from that time forward, but that God has also known that it would take something greater. It would take something immeasurably more to save humanity than knowledge or strength. It was going to take something that could cover their sin and their evil and their wrongdoing. Something that would actually deal with that wrongdoing and get rid of that sin. God has always been a holy and a perfect God and pure, and he can't be in the presence of sin. Actually, it's probably the opposite, is that sin and evil cannot be in his presence, otherwise it would burn up 
It's just, it's just not possible. And so for this reason, as you may already know, God had already set in motion back in the Old Testament a way for people's sin to be covered, to be dealt with, to be atoned for, as the Bible uses the word. And he did this at least temporarily. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 says that the life was in the blood and therefore that in order for their sin to be covered during the Old Testament times, that they had to sacrifice a spotless animal and its blood be used. And the animal had to be burnt as an uh, an, a sacrifice on the altar in order for the people's sin to be forgiven. And this was the job of the priest. This was the job of uh, them to perform these sacrifices. And this was only a temporary solution that had to be done every single year in order for them to remain pure and holy and blameless before God. But this form of animal sacrifice was originally set up by God because he knew that life, purity, and sacrifice was needed in order for humanity's wrongdoing, for humanity's evil, for humanity's sin or bad or whatever you want to call it, to be made right, to be atoned for, to be covered. The life was in the blood. And something, something that was deemed worthy or someone had to take the punishment for our sin. Otherwise, we would have had to take the punishment ourselves. But God also, he didn't just want the Israelites of the Old Testament to receive this salvation and be saved. God has always wanted all people to be saved and to be able to go to heaven. Even back in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham or Abram that all people on earth would be blessed through him. And in Isaiah 49 verse 6, it tells us that I will make you a light to the Gentiles, which just means non-Jews. And that you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. God's desire has always been that all people would come to know him and have a chance to be able to go to heaven with him. So he made the biggest sacrifice that anyone could ever make. And in doing so, he took the first step in making salvation in making eternal life in heaven with him available to all people. Now let's read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, and just hear once more what this first step that God took was. It said, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. Just before they came together, it says uh, that, his Mary mother was pledged to be married to, to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So they're pledged to be married. 
Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant. The only logical explanation is that she was unfaithful and that she had been with another man. Now, Joseph, in his mind, uh, was it says that he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He was faithful to the law. So he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And this all took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not only was Jesus, God's son, going to be born into our world, first step, but we're also given a hint as to what one of the other steps would be. And that's that in verse 21, it says that he will save his people from their sins. And although the people of that day had no idea what this truly meant, <clears throat> that God, God was still fulfilling it in their midst. And so, but let's really quickly read Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. And let's also discuss the conditions of him coming into the world. So it says that during the Roman census, where they were counting the people, again, Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, it says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. So, really quickly, before I go any further forward, now, they're going, and it's, it's a long journey, it's many miles, and the only way to be able to get there would be on some kind of an animal, maybe a donkey or something like that, depending on how wealthy you were. But they had to go to their hometown where they were from to register so that the Romans could count the people and, again, show their control and, and make sure they had everything in line. And so Joseph has to take his wife Mary all the way down from Nazareth, which is above by the Sea of Galilee, down all the way to Bethlehem, because where he was from, he was part of the line of David. Can you just imagine, though, his wife Mary is fully pregnant. Everybody else is getting there really quick, but they're having to stop. They're having to take pauses. They're obviously among the last people to get there probably had to travel further than most. And so it says, though, that when they got there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She, she wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Did you catch it? 
born in a stable. The only place there's a manger is in a stable. Because there was no room available for them in an inn. No hotel. No Motel 6. Not even a hospital. The Son of God is born in a stable with animals. I don't know if you've been in a stable before. It doesn't smell very good. Because there was no room for them in the inn. Even Jesus' birth was lowly and unnoticed by most. So Emmanuel, God with us, went from, uh, picture this, went from the high of highs in heaven to the low of lows on earth. I mean, maybe, maybe you've never pictured that before. This, this son of God should have been born into royalty, should have been born in a palace, should have been celebrated by all people. I don't, not ever, I don't know if you've ever thought about this or, or imagined this before, but he, was, he, he came into the world in a, a lowly way. Even his birth was a sacrifice. So many times we think about his death being a sacrifice, but even the way he entered into the world was sacrificial. And another passage that explains more completely what God did for us by sending his son Jesus is in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And it says this, if you, if you want to turn there, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. That's what will be for the remainder of our time. But it says, but, but when the time had come, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons and daughters. Now, there's three things that I want to point out to you this morning from this passage that were made clear to me this week as I was reading some, some well-respected commentators uh, Barkley and Hansen, and I believe they're going to help us better understand what God did for us by choosing to send his son, Jesus. Number one, in verse four, if you're seeing it, but God, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son at the time that was set by the father. When the time had fully come. Now, in Barkley's commentary, there's an interesting parallel between God sending his son in his timing so that we could inherit heaven and the timing of a son inheriting the family estate and becoming a man at the time that was set by his father. Now, in different places, this was, this was handled differently. And for the Jews, this was at age 12. When they came into the temple and when they started to follow God and recite um, certain, you know, certain things and, and become a man. 
the Greeks, it was at age 18 plus two years of training and actually cutting off their hair as a sign of being a man. The Romans between ages 14 and 17. And one of the things that they also did was sacrifice their toys to Apollo, uh, showing that they had put childish ways behind them. Now, every single one of these nations had a different timeline of their son inheriting the, the estate or becoming a man. But they all had a specific time in which it happened. And this passage, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, also makes it clear for us that at the perfect time, God sent his son Jesus so that we, his sons and daughters, could inherit the estate of heaven that he has for us. Isn't that exciting? That was the first thing. The second thing is that in verse 5 it says, born under law to redeem, and that just means to buy back, to redeem just means to buy back, to buy back those under the law. He was born under the law to redeem and buy back those under the law. Jesus came to those under the law. We all have to follow the law. And can I just say that following laws uh, can honestly not be done perfectly. You just can't. And so he came to buy people back from the law and rather provide them with an inheritance of heaven. And in doing so, cancel people's debt of sin and wrongdoing. And this inheritance, this inheritance could only come by faith. This inheritance in the Old Testament time in the Bible, as we've already said, came by the death of a sacrifice of a spotless animal every year. But now it comes through believing in Jesus Christ. The one true sacrificial lamb. And he sacrificed himself on the cross for us once and for all. Buying us back from our sin. Covering us with his eternal life and blood. And this is kind of like the man in the gospel of Matthew chapter 18 verses 23 through 27, that owes a ton of money to a king and how this king actually buys him out or buys him back from all of his debt and forgives him of it all. It says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decides to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. So in the process of this king trying to settle accounts and bring all of his debts up to up to speed, it says in the process, one of his debtors was brought to him who owed him. This translation says millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife. His children and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me. I will pay it back. I'll pay it all back. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and he forgave his debt. This man, like our many sins that, that we have committed, that we could never repay, he also owed more money than he would ever 
be able to repay. Yet his debts were completely covered and forgiven and dropped. Just like that. He was redeemed. His debt was covered. And so, so too, through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, our sins also can be covered and forgiven once and for all. We are redeemed. And the third thing that I saw from this passage was in verse 5, right at the end it says that we might receive the full rights of sons and daughters. Receiving the full rights of sons and daughters really points to the fact that although we're not God's children by nature, we're still able to receive these rights of being sons and daughters by being adopted into his family. Therefore, receiving the same inheritance, the same gifts, the same rights as Jesus, who is God's son. I don't know if all of you know this, but our son Micah was adopted. And for quite some time we were praying, um, and we just felt like God was saying, you need to adopt, I want you to adopt. And so we kind of had three paths in front of us that we could have chosen. The first one was we could have gone through the county, which probably would, it definitely would have been the, the most cost effective. It would have been like hundreds to uh, maybe $1,000 or $2,000. We also, there was this uh, organization called Bethany Christian Services, and we could have adopted domestically within the United States. And that was going to be around $21,000. The most expensive, which is what we were leaning towards, was adopting internationally adopting um, from Africa is, is where our hearts desired. And during this whole time, I'll spare you all the details, the, the way for us to adopt in the place in Africa that we wanted to, it closed. And so basically, we felt like, okay, God, you must be leading us in another direction. And we really felt like God was leading us to Bethany Christian Services. We went to um, visit Bethany Christian Services, do this eight-hour class to see if this is the, the direction we wanted to go. Come and ask me or Kristen sometime. We can tell you the story of how God completely confirmed that we were supposed to go through Bethany Christian Services, even though it was going to be way more, and we didn't know how we were going to do it. So we started the process. <clears throat> we filled out all the paperwork, and we put our portfolio together that a mother or a family could could look at different people's portfolios and see what their family was like and decide if that might be the family that they wanted to raise their son by. And we got a call within about six weeks. Kind of crazy that it went that fast. But we got a call from a mother who was seven and a half months pregnant, and she wanted to meet with us. She was interested in us. And so we decided to meet at the Olive Garden. And by the end of our meeting at the Olive Garden, she looked us the table in the face and said I would be so happy if you guys would raise my son and so about a month and a half later we got the call from our social worker and on that night we headed to the hospital because she was in labor and within a half an hour of Micah being delivered into this world we had the privilege of being able to hold him 
not only hold him in our hands, but we had a little time with the mother, and then we were transitioned to a room that now, another place in the hospital where we would raise their son. Our son, Micah. And we didn't know, though, even for the first six months, if Micah might be taken away for us. Because how it works in the system is that you have to give six months in order for your son or your daughter, if the, if the mother or the father wants to raise the child, they legally can do that. And so I literally remember, we already had six months of bonding with our son, but going to the courtroom, having our court date on that six-month date, and the judge signing the papers, and us looking at each other and realizing that Micah was now ours. And what this meant was that Micah was now a Westfall. That he had the same rights as his now sister Grace, and that he is just as loved, he's just as cherished, just as valued and worthy and significant as she is. Amen? And not only on paper will he get the same inheritance as her, but he also has that inheritance in our hearts because our hearts and our actions speak louder than anything else. And Jesus sent his one and only son as a way of meeting the requirements for us so that we could be adopted into his family and to show us by his actions just how much he loved us. And if we believe in Jesus, and you can do that today, if you've, if you've never accepted Jesus, you can actually just simply ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin, of your wrongdoing, and to believe in him as your Savior and as your Lord. And then to live for him every day and to get to know the Bible. But if you believe in Jesus, not only are you going to be in heaven with him one day, but you have also been given his presence in you, his majesty, his glory, his likeness through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this all happens, and it's all possible, because God chose to send his only son, Jesus. And Jesus' desire now is that we would go and share with him, or share him with others this holiday season. And my question for us this morning is, who might that be for us in the week ahead? Who might that be? It could be a friend that just desperately needs peace and they're struggling with feeling like what's the point of life and they just need someone who will come up to them and let them know that it's going to be okay and they're not alone. Uh, it could be a neighbor that you're normally too busy to talk to but really needs some hope. And that if you're able to just slow down just enough from your busy schedule this Christmas season, you might be able to bring them the hope that they need. Or it could be a person at work that's just so stressed with their workload or 
thinking that they're going to lose their job, or maybe they have some family or marriage troubles, and you might just be able to listen. You might be able to offer some encouragement or wisdom or ask them if you can pray for them. Or it could be somebody that you're literally just walking by in the grocery store or at the mall or wherever you may be, and something in your gut just says, stop, ask that person how they're doing. They don't seem like they're doing okay. And you just never know what need they might have that you might be able to meet. And in doing so, you might be able to bring them joy this Christmas season. Don't overcomplicate it. If you want to be used by God this Christmas season, if you're asking him to show you how to be able to bring his love and his life to others this Christmas season, just keep your eyes open and know that he will. God made the choice to send his one and only son all those years ago. And it's not so much if he'll provide us with an opportunity this Christmas season, but if, if we'll be willing to follow through in obedience and to take him up on his offer, even if it comes to a time when we feel like we're too busy in the moment or too fearful in our own insecurities or too tired in our own strength. Just remember that he is always with you, that he is always in you, and that you are not alone. And then enter with confidence and humility and love. God made the choice to send his only son. So let's make the choice to share his hope, his joy, his peace, his life with someone else this Christmas.